You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 38 to 42. And um, I want to get right to our main point today for the sake of time. And I'm going to give you our big idea on the screen today from our passage. Here's uh, our propositional statement, our thesis. It's this, okay? As a Christ follower, uh, someone's truly saved, someone's born again by the Spirit of God. Really, listen to this too. As someone who's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So all those genuinely in Christ, the bottom line for today is this. I am called from retaliation and revenge, which is what sin does and the world does. And in Christ, I'm actually called from that to personal suffering and self-sacrifice. I want you to look at that. I want you to take it seriously right now. Again, this is the whole point of today's passage. So if I'm in Christ, because I'm not living for now, ultimately I'm living for the world to come, heaven, Christ's return, therefore... I deny self now, I suffer now, I go without now because of the promises to come, and I certainly am called from retaliation and revenge and making it all about me here and now, and in Christ I am called to suffering and self-sacrifice, personal suffering and self-sacrifice. I mean, it's really important we say these things out loud too because Jesus is so clear. Maybe you're here today and you're searching. What does it really mean to follow Jesus Christ? And some people have taught you, oh, you follow Jesus and you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And not in the Bible, all right? That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches you'll be eternally blessed, and your sins will be forgiven forever. Scripture teaches that you'll be a child of God, and your guaranteed entrance into heaven is certain. It will never be taken from you. Scripture teaches that you have the promise of eternal hope of glory and bliss forever in Jesus Christ. But it also promises life gets harder, You will not be popular. You will be opposed. Satan is real. And it gets really difficult. But because you believe in Christ and forgiveness of sins, it's all worth it in the end. You need to know, though, the truth of what the Bible actually teaches in regards to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and to truly follow Jesus Christ. Our series theme, as you see there, is living in light, again, of the kingdom of heaven. And today we see, again, in such clarity... The ways of the kingdom of God are so different than the ways of the world. Like they're just polar opposites to truly follow Christ as opposed to following the ways of the world. And our passage today drives this point home as much as any passage thus far in the Sermon of the Mount again this fall. Now the two sections we'll encounter today and Lord willing again next week. These Two sections will challenge the genuine believer as much as any in this entire sermon, like this series. The next two passages, today, called from retaliation and revenge, turn the other cheek, walk a double mile, like, and then next week, love your enemies, pray for those who curse you. They will be as challenging as it gets because they are so difficult to live out. I mean, I'm just studying this passage in a way I haven't previously challenged, man, like convicted and wrestling with what Jesus is saying as well. That's a good thing. And I pray you will join me on that as well. The other thing we learned today, too, is obedience to today's passage is 
absolutely impossible apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Like, you and I cannot do this by ourselves, in our flesh, in our strength. There's no way. It's, it's too supernatural. It's too countercultural. It is absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit who is promised to every person who's genuinely alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at our text today, our challenging text, Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus says this. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. He ends the section with this. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, so Jesus continues... This series of his statement, you have heard that it was said. And now he introduces these very challenging concepts of what it means to live in light of the kingdom of God, which he brought, again, with his arrival. He now deals with a very familiar law. Like all of us in the church are not, we'll be familiar with the saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that specific law is found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It is found in Exodus 21, it is found in Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. This law is also known as a lex talionis, Latin for literally the law of retaliation. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, lex talionis, the law of retaliation, which is important to understand. This is actually the foundation for our justice system today, which is right and good, right? The punishment matches the crime. Like, we hold to that. When someone commits a crime in some way, the punishment must match that crime. That's where this derives from, this law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The law of retaliation. It is good. It is right. It is justice. So it's very important because this eye for eye saying tooth for tooth has been misinterpreted or been misunderstood, again, along the centuries. It's very important we understand this law was instituted in the Old Covenant not in a way to promote revenge. Most people think an eye for eye is, I'm going to get revenge on that person. That's not why the law was put in place. It was not to promote personal revenge. In fact, it was there to prevent excess retribution. So just let's play this out a little bit. eh? You imagine someone has been harmed and they are personally furious, upset, and they desire personal justice, retribution, and revenge. The desire on the person, you harmed me, I'm going to get double revenge on you. You plucked out my eye, I'm going to take off your head. That's kind of how it goes when humans in their sinfulness are left to themselves and seeking revenge again for a certain situation where they consider to be justice. You can imagine if this wasn't handled in the right way, this would be beginning of an unending feud leading to families hating families and tribal warfare, again, as an end result. Consider gangs in our day. When, when gangs seek to have justice and revenge, it never stops at an eye for an eye. It's always double revenge, and it keeps going till there's a bloodbath on the streets. This is what this law was originally intended to prevent. 
The law was also to be administered by authorities, not by individuals. Now, why is that so important? Well, we've already suggested that. It was to be administered by the authorities and not individuals because this would prevent the individual from carrying out a zealous desire for personal revenge and retribution as they saw fit. So it's taken out of the hands of the individual. It's placed into the authorities so proper justice can be administered. Again, justice to the authorities, not to the individual. However... By the first century, when our passage here today, this law was being used outside of its original intent and used to justify acts of bitterness, revenge, hatred, and utter wickedness. See, people have personal vendettas. And when they have a personal vendetta, they were trying to push this law as far as possible to seek the outcome they wanted, primarily a lust for personal payback and personal retribution. The scribes and the Pharisees were actually the ones in particular who were trying to use this law to justify their own means, to justify their own personal vendettas and revenge in whatever form that might look like. Again, the very thing this law was originally trying to prevent the lust for personal vengeance. So it's here, this context is extremely helpful for us. So it's here that Jesus then stands up and declares, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, we must live in the text. We're always trying to live in the text and just try to absorb how countercultural that statement would be again by Jesus. To truly live in the kingdom of God is to live with an entirely different set of purposes, values, character, and ethics. Christ's followers must look so different from the world around them. Before we jump into that, though, let me just say, in verse 39, when Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, that's been a a verse of subject of debate over the centuries. Is this a call for strict pacifism? Is this a call to never resist evil at any level? Now, when we're studying Scripture, this is very important, loved ones, right? We must always be cautious when you're studying Scripture and when you're receiving Scripture being taught by others, Always be very cautious and in some ways suspicious when a verse is taken out of context, isolated, and absolutized without the proper context within the setting of Scripture. I'll say it again. Be always cautious when people isolate a verse and absolutize that verse without the proper context. Right? Scripture always interprets Scripture. So false teaching almost always derives from a false teacher lifting a verse out of context and absolutizing that verse as if there's nothing else that contradicts it. Again, Scripture will never contradict itself. There's always a unity within Scripture, so we use the totality of Scripture to understand the passages that we are in again together. And as we do that, listen, the key to this passage and the context of verse 39 is Jesus is speaking to individuals. He's speaking to individuals in respect of their interpersonal relationships. It says nothing of governments here. It says nothing of police or soldiers. In fact, when you look at what Scripture does say about the institution of government, soldiers, and police, and whatnot, again, God forms governments for the benefit of society. Specifically, in 1 Peter 2, it says God has instituted governments, listen, to punish those who do, quote, evil. 
So the Bible's teaching us again to resist evil is absolutely right and good. And God has instituted governments in part to restrain evil for the stability and safety of the citizens. For that, we we are very thankful. So obviously, this is not what Jesus is referring to then. Practically speaking too, right? When an individual is doing physical harm or a serious threat of evil against another person, let alone a family member or my wife, I'm not standing by and watching. I'm not resisting the evil and letting my wife be physical. I'm, I'm entering in. Amen, men? Like I'm entering in to protect and resist the evil coming against my family or any one of you for that matter. I'm not standing by and watching. It's a natural response to say, no, no, we're not going to let this evil continue because we know, again, inherently that this is wrong and seeking the safety and the protection of the individuals that are being harmed. So Jesus here is not against the principle of restitution within society. He's not speaking to that here. Rather, he's addressing individual personal relationships. Four times, and the idea of personal retaliation and personal revenge, sinful revenge against someone, again, who has come against you. Four times he says a statement such as, but if anyone slaps you, if anyone sues you, if anyone asks of you, right? So there's an individual interaction that is happening here. He's not referring to governmental institutions. The heart of what Jesus is teaching here is this. The world is motivated by personal revenge and personal retribution. Followers of Christ must not be. Followers of Christ are different. True followers of Christ are not about retaliation and not about revenge. We leave that to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Followers of Christ trust him for justice ultimately at the end. Rather than being about personal retaliation or revenge, we are actually about personal suffering and self-sacrifice in light of the kingdom and the love of Jesus Christ and what he's promised to us. It's not a big deal. And this is, again, a challenging command and challenging passage. So the question I have then, okay, So if we're to live in light of the kingdom and we're called from retaliation and revenge, we're called to personal suffering and self-sacrifice, what does that look like then, Jesus? What does that look like in our lives, practically speaking? Jesus, what he does now, he gives four illustrations of what this looks like when we are to live in light of the kingdom. They're challenging illustrations, but they're helpful illustrations. We're going to go through them one at a time here on the screen beside me or behind me. So number one. What does it mean to live in light of the kingdom? Number one, I will have a willingness to suffer harm or a willingness to suffer insult. Look at, look at verse 39. It says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, contextually, it's important to understand this. Okay? In the first century, one of the greatest insults and, a, and abuse that an individual could receive would be a backhand to the face. Um, that's still true in the East, and I imagine that's true here right now. I mean, someone walks up to you and just gives you a backhand across your face, uh, you're going to be pretty insulted. That's, that's pretty horrible. 
And it certainly was in the context of the first thing. Notice, too, he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, right? So it would be the right hand, the back of the right hand, across, then, the back of the right cheek. Bam, like that. That would be the greatest insults and abuse that you could suffer in the first century. And this insulting, horrible act was often done in a form of religious persecution um, as well. So notice that in that context, we understand it. Jesus isn't referring really to violence then. It's more about insults done against us as those who follow Christ. So Jesus is preparing his disciples. Listen, people will hate you because of me. But you are not to retaliate with hate in return. People will injure you. They will insult you. They will harm you because of me. But you are not to retaliate with insult or injury or harm. You are not to seek vengeance in this way. You are not to return for them an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth. And of course, Jesus himself lived out what he taught. Uh, During his mock trial, before he was about to be murdered, he was, the scripture says he was spit upon, He was struck, and it explicitly says he was slapped. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, when Jesus was reviled, uh, he did not revile in return. This is the heart of what Jesus is doing. Now let's be so clear here too, okay? Turn the other cheek does not mean that true believers are doormats. It means we do not retaliate in vengeance. It does not mean we are doormats. Lying down, anyone can just do whatever they want to us. Jesus is slapped because he's standing for truth. He would eventually be killed for standing for truth. But he was not a doormat. He was standing for, again, what was right and true and the message of life over death. And the people hated it around him. And again, he gave his life for that. You and I are also to stand for truth. We are not doormats, but we do not retaliate. We expect to be insulted for the sake of Christ. We expect to be injured in that sense, verbally or however other way it might happen. But the idea is we will not retaliate with revenge and seeking to get back in sinful anger for what's been done against us. Easy, no. Possible, yes, in the Holy Spirit. Jesus modeled unbelievable meekness and beautiful humility because of the end result because of what he was ultimately called to do. So, again, the key here is the Christ follower is willing to suffer personal insult. You know, um, a biblical example of what not to do, in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus enters into uh, Samaria, and um, the Samaritans see Jesus, his face was turned toward Jerusalem, and so they reject him and despise him. And James and John there, filled with, you know, anger and sinful anger, the Lord, let me call down fire from heaven and smote them all, Right? And Jesus is like, no, you dummies, we don't do that. He didn't say that. But he said, he rebuked them. He rebuked them. He said, no, no, that's not why I came. That's not what we're about. We're not calling fire down from heaven. Every person doesn't agree with us, right? Jesus came to do the opposite, to love his enemies and pray for those who curse them and to seek to not retaliate and get revenge again because that would be anti what he desires us to do. But see, this is hard because when we're attacked or we're assaulted or insulted, we feel like we've been injured verbally, right, for our faith, whatever it might be, our flesh wants to react, yes? Our flesh wants to attack. Our flesh wants to defend. How dare you do that to me? But you're like, no, 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 no. He's like, when you've been slapped in a brutal way across the cheek, he says, I don't want you to retaliate. I want you to offer the other. 
want you to turn the other cheek, not retaliate. I want you to not get revenge. I, I do not want you to respond in kind. I want you to trust me. I want you to respond with, to hate with love. Because that's why I've given you my Holy Spirit to do what you cannot do in and of yourself. Lord, that's hard. He says it is hard, but it is, but it is possible. This is what it means to live in the light of the kingdom. Secondly, it means a preparedness to relinquish rights. To live in the light of the kingdom means a preparedness to relinquish our rights. So look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So interesting here, eh? So a tunic was a long garment of clothing. In our modern day, it would be the equivalent to a woman's dress or a men's suit. The cloak, notice there's a tunic. He's like, if they want your tunic, sue you for your tunic. He's like, give them your cloak. The cloak was actually the more valuable coat that went over top of the tunic. The context here is when a Christ follower is being sued for his or her tunic, the command here is give him your coat as well. Which is pretty staggering in some ways because the reason this is significant, the law prohibited the confiscation of someone's cloak. That's in Exodus 22. This may sound very strange to us, but the cloak was actually the right of every single individual. The law stated that it was the right of every person to own a coat, a cloak. For many, for poor people, the cloak would actually be bedding when they slept outside. So what Jesus is saying here, I mean, when he's teaching, as R.T. France says, Jesus is teaching a radically unselfish attitude, listen, toward one's rights, the right of a cloak, and their property as in owning a cloak. It's a radically unselfish attitude. When someone sues you for the tunic, give them your most valuable material possession that you wear, your cloak as well. And by the way, um, in this text today, it's so interesting that many modern sayings that we all know so well come directly from our passage today. And a bunch of them you should know right off the bat. Uh, a saying like an eye for an eye. Of course, that's right from our text. And that's said all the time in society. Turn the other cheek. That is said in all aspects of society as well. Um, in this particular illustration right now, uh, give the shirt off your back. That comes from here. And then in the, one of the coming illustrations there, go the extra mile. That's actually right from our text as well. It's an amazing to think the principles and the teaching of Jesus that have been sustained over thousands of years that have entered into everyday language, and most people have no idea where they come from. They come from here. But let's just admit, as we look at our text here, let's admit, verse 40, how utterly countercultural this is. Let's also admit how bad we are at this as well. What? Bad at relinquishing our rights in the light of the kingdom and the sake of Jesus Christ. We're really bad at Our world teaches, don't, don't relinquish any rights at all. It's all about your rights. Everything's about your rights. Personal, personal rights. All the time, everywhere, every case. Me, 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 me. Jesus says, actually, no. Jesus says, I want you to forego your rights in light of the kingdom. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was studying verse 40 this week, it was a struggle to me. I was looking at that. I'm like, well, if someone sues you for your tunic, Lord, then you're asking that we should give our coat, understanding what the coat represents, and just most valuable, again, in this case, possession of necessity. Why would we do that? Why isn't the tunic enough? Why would we double down and give the coat as well? I was kind of perplexed about that. Lord, Lord why, why should we forgo what is rightfully ours right now in this sense? And by the way, if someone asked you that question right now, how would you answer it theologically? Why should we forgo the, our rights, which are rightfully ours according to the law? 
Why would we do that? We don't have to. What would you say to that question? Even as believers, why, why should we forego? One thing, take the tunic, but you want the coat as well. Again, why is the Christ follower to be willing to forego rights in a world that says rights are everything and you should hold on to them at all costs? Why is the believer in Christ called to radical unselfishness? So I, I literally asked the Lord that. Holy Spirit, you got to help me understand this more. Just personally, I just want to understand this more. And I literally asked him out loud, Holy Spirit, just teach me about this right now. Like, what other thoughts should I have? And I tell you, like, three seconds later, uh, Hebrews 10, 34 popped into my mind. And I was like, oh, that's a good one, Lord. And Hebrews 10, 34 says this. Listen, you have compassion on those in prison. Listen to this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Isn't that something? You not just accepted the plundering, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your the plundering of your property. Why would someone do that? Here's the answer. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, this is the gospel. This is living in light of the kingdom of heaven. Our passage says some things, but a further explanation as to why would this be the case. When you have been given everything in Jesus Christ, when you ultimately live again for heaven and glory to come, when you are a child of God and you belong to Jesus Christ, you are a co-heir of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, your personal property here on earth is seen for what it is, not much. So they steal it from you, and then you're like, hmm. Go ahead, because I have a better possession and an abiding one, eternity, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are willing to forego rights now because we possess eternal possessions in Jesus Christ. Now imagine living this out. I mean, it's very hard. But it is possible, again, by the Holy Spirit of God. See, think about it, how quickly the world is to sue others. How quickly believers in Christ are to surrender to Christ with both their rights and what they have. I'll say it again, our world is so quick to sue. I drive into the state sometimes, eh, and the billboards, man, you seen that? There's a lot of suing billboards. Every second one is sue this, sue that, sue this, sue that. If Canada's allowed legally, but we're no different in so many ways. Get back, get back, it's mine, da 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 The world is so fast to sue. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And Jesus says, actually, I want you to be quick to surrender. I want you to trust me. I want you to surrender me because you have a better and abiding possession. Eternity is coming for you, my child. I want you to live in light of the kingdom. God, help us with that, even to relinquish our rights as citizens of the kingdom. Point number three, what does this look like? It looks like an acceptance of personal imposition. Personal imposition. Look at, look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's that all about? This likely refers to the law of a Roman soldier within the Roman Empire who at any time could commandeer a civilian into some kind of forced labor in the moment at his word. So let's just say a Roman soldier is going along and has a bag of luggage or has his swords or gear that he has. At any point, come up to a Jewish person and say, you, 
carry my stuff and I want you to go for a mile with me. That was the law. In fact, in, in, it's actually a thousand Roman paces, a thousand paces, just under a mile. Our translations have the equivalent to that, so we understand. I want you to carry my stuff. And they had to, by law, carry his equipment, baggage, whatever it is, again, for a thousand Roman paces. The Jewish people hated this law. They detested it so much. They despised it. The last thing they wanted to do was for a Roman soldier to come up and force them to work on their behalf. So Jesus says here, he says, rather than hating this request, I want you to give double of yourself joyfully to what's being asked of you. Again, the attitude of the Christ follower is so completely set apart from others in this world. So here, by God's spirit in us, in living the life of the kingdom, humbling ourselves, it's the ability to look at something that others despise and to not only do it, but to do it double. That's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit, right? Like only the Holy Spirit can actually, we, we could do that begrudgingly and like hate the person the whole time we're doing it, or by the Holy Spirit to actually have a cheerful disposition and rejoicing in being put out of you know, comfort, whatever it is, and serving others and doing it with the right attitude by the Holy Spirit. It's part of living in light of the kingdom. Ken Hughes, he puts it this way kind of practically and with a little bit of humor. He says, when you wash dishes, you can water them with your tears or you can sing hymns. That's true, right? Like you're asked to wash the dishes. You can sit there and cry and tears come down. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Or you can turn it and say, I'm doing it anyway, so I might as well just sing praise to the Lord. What a difference that is from the person whining and complaining to the person choosing to accept the responsibility and give praise to the Lord as they're doing it. That's such a good word. And by the way, this is why believers should be the best employees. Hey, think about that. Like, that's a great challenge for you and me. Believers, genuine believers in Jesus Christ should be the best employees. Why? We have the Holy Spirit. Uh, He makes a difference. He better make a difference in your life. Okay, so if we're genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. The fruit of the Spirit, ever heard of that? The fruit of the Spirit, that should be seen in our lives. Whether we're at home, whether we're out in the community, whether we're, again, at work. We should be the best employees because, again, we're living with a different lens. We're serving Jesus Christ. We are living in light of the kingdom um, of God. Here's a question, man. What do you especially dislike doing in your life right now that you could joyfully double down on in doing this week? Wouldn't that be amazing? Like actually having an attitude. You've despised it in the past. But you're going to be asked to do something this week or this month, whatever it is, and you will joyfully double down on doing that task. Man, that would be so interesting, wouldn't it? Let's go practically into the home. Son, I want you to clean your room. Yes, Dad, and I will also clean my sister's. That's never happened in our home, by the way. Ever. That's never happened once in our home. But that would be an example of an attitude of like, yes, I will do that. And I will go the second mile and I will assist and clean again. Kids, man, if you did that, what a Christmas gift to your parents a little bit early on, you know. But do it for the right attitude. Do it for the right attitude, right? Or how about, how about you, you ever noticed how it, it kind of amuses me that like you're in traffic 
and people are coming in for the highway, and they're coming up on the on-ramp in the lane there, and they come in, and people fighting for one spot. Like, just like, they won't, you know, just like, how dare that, how dare that person get in front of me, whatever it is. And, and then, you know, I feel the temptation too sometimes. Oh, we're waiting, how come you get there? Wouldn't it be amazing just to kind of slow down a little bit and be like, you know what, not just one of you go in, two of you can go in. <laughs> and to do it because you're just like, whatever. Like, whatever. Hey, uh, at the grocery store, all the commotion at Christmas. It's a great message because it's Christmas season right now. And all the business. Everyone's fighting for their own position. Everyone's fighting for their own selfish desires. Everyone's trying to position themselves because they're more important than the next person. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We don't do that here. No, 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 no. As kingdom citizens, we're like, go ahead, man. Go ahead. It's not that important to me. I was traveling last weekend. went to Indianapolis, the GCC church, preaching there. The airport, man. The airport's hilarious because everyone's trying to find their way uh, a little bit further in front of the line. And I get the temptation for that too, whatever. But just the ability to be like, whatever. You know, the chance. God, help us. God, help us. Like, just how selfish we can be and how sinful we can be as well. And again, for, for all of us in some way too, like, for all of us maybe who are employees, Again, like you will have practical opportunities, a task that you have hated or at least not liked. What, what would it do in your area of employment if you were like, yep, I'm going to do that and I'm going to do more? I mean, your boss would probably be like, what, what happened to you, right? And the ability, and to trust, you're not trusting man, you're trusting God in that moment. Jesus, I'm doing this for you ultimately, because I'm living in light of the kingdom of God. It's so countercultural. Again, don't do it. It's the key. Don't do it. Maybe they'll get a raise. Or don't do it because then all of a sudden I'll get praise. Do it because you love Jesus. That's the key. That's the key to this. Do it because you've been set apart for the kingdom of heaven. An acceptance of personal imposition. And then lastly, a cheerful desire to give and to lend. If I'm truly living in light of the kingdom, then I will have generosity as part of my life. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So what Jesus has here is really the financial counterpart to an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth. In other words, Jesus is saying this, and please, please understand, this is a big deal, man, because of how much real estate Jesus gives in the Gospels to the area of money and giving. Jesus is anything but okay. I'll say it again. He is anything but okay with the tight-fisted, penny-pinching, stingy Scrooge. He is not good with that. He is not good with that person. Anyone who's genuinely saved in Christ must not be that way. Again, his point here, by the way, in verse 42, is not that we give money to every needy person, even when we know they're going to hurt themselves and harm themselves spending on their addictions. That's not what he's saying here. This is not a legalistic application. That's not the point. The point here is for those who are genuinely in his kingdom, saved by grace through faith, generosity must be the heart of their lives. All of Christ's followers must exhibit generosity coming from their lives. Followers of Christ, listen, must, must, no exceptions, must be generous. It's one of the greatest ways that we prove that we're living in light of his kingdom and not the world system. Because everything in this world is the accumulation of more stuff that's all going to rot and be destroyed. That's what dumb people do. 
people living for the kingdom let go of the world and tighten their grip on the kingdom of God, right? One of the best ways you know you're growing with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is your grip on the kingdom tightens and your grip on the world loosens. One of the great signs of maturity. How are you doing, by the way, right now? How are you doing with that? Are you holding on for dear life to the world? That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. In fact, if you're holding on for dear life under the things of this earth, that's an indication you got serious spiritual problems. Because the more Christ is growing in us, our grip tightens on his kingdom because it's everything we have, and then it loosens on the things of the world, right? This is, this is why Jesus, you guys, most of you know this already, but this is why Jesus literally talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Why? Because Jesus wants your money. As if that's true. As if. That's so dumb. Jesus, as if Jesus needs your money. It's his money anyways. I mean, he's the maker of heavens and earth. What in the world would he need your money for? But he does want this, your heart. And what the Bible teaches us, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That's why he wants the giving of treasure because when he has your heart, he has your treasure, has your treasure, has your heart. See, that's why when people are truly converted, their wallet's also converted. If you say you're saved and you're giving nothing to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ or to anyone else in generosity, I, I have a hard time with that. I, I struggle, like, because God doesn't just change parts of the person. He changes all of us. Now, it happens in stages, and it happens, you know, an uphill climb. I totally understand that. But the reality is, again, he cares so much about generosity because generosity is such a part of who he is. I mean, Jesus Christ, being rich himself in his glory, became poor for our sake and died for us that we might become rich in Christ. Spiritually rich, that is. The very gospel is a giving of self for the benefit, again, of others. What a perfect season this is to be reminded of the generosity of the DNA of generosity to be found in Christ's followers. It's Christmas season. It's, it's a beautiful time for that. All year is. But let's be prayerful of how we can increase our generosity. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. You know, one of the Goals my wife Jill and I have over every year, I mean, since, you know, we've been married, is how can we increase our giving year after year after year in some form or another? How can our giving increase, not decrease? It's a great goal. It's wonderful to do. And so awesome just to see how the Lord uses that as well over the years. Jesus is saying less stuff, more generosity. Less accumulation, more giving. Less useless trinkets, more eternal riches. This is what it means to live in light of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we conclude this challenging passage, I have one more question um, to all of what Jesus has challenged us with today. I have one more question, really, for Jesus, and it's this Why? Why? Why are we called to live such radical lives? Why is this necessary? So few people are doing it. Why is this so important? And that's really important to say. You should know the answer. But it's good to say out loud, Lord, why? Because he doesn't, doesn't give the answer in this specific passage. It's all around it, and we'll get to a lot of those in chapter 6 and all our parts of Scripture, but it's important for us to remember why are we called to do this? It's because we are called to live in light of his kingdom. And when we live in light of his kingdom, then everything changes. Let me explain it this way just as we conclude. 
this message, okay? So in Christ, we've been given all things. Like, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been given eternal life, and you will we'll see what we've been given. But because this is true, do I suffer harm now? Do I suffer insult now? Yes. Why am I willing to suffer injury or insult or harm now? It's because in Christ I have been designated royalty. First uh, Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Uh, you can say what you want about me. You can insult me. You can try to harm me. You can kill me for that matter. But in the end, nothing will change my royal designation in Jesus Christ all because of his grace. So that's very powerful. Go ahead and insult me. If God is for me, who can be against me? Right? Nothing shall separate me from the love of God. So Jesus Christ, I'm willing to suffer harm or injury or insult now because I'm royalty. And this is the gospel. This is the power of living for what will be. Let's go to the next one. Am I willing to forgo rights now? Why would I forgo rights now? Well, the reason I would forgo rights now is because I am a co-heir of Jesus Christ. Like literally and truly for all those saved in Jesus Christ here today, his inheritance is yours. I mean, just try to wrap your mind around that. You have been given the right in Christ by grace through faith. You have been given the right is being a co-heir. The inheritance of Christ is now your right as well. So if that's my right, who cares about rights here on earth? Take them all you want. I'm a co-heir of Christ. That's a way better deal than anything else I'll get on this earth. That's why we do it, because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus Christ promises to do. Let's go to the next one here. Why would I be willing to suffer imposition now? Well, it's because my position as God's child is secure forever. Romans 18, that we are adopted as a son or daughter of God. We cry out, Abba, Father, God, our Father, we belong to him. We are his children. He will never, ever cast us out. He has us forever. We will be there forever. So I'll suffer a little bit of imposition now when my position is found in the family of God. See, everything's about what is to come and what is to be. The reality of the gospel. And the last one. Why would I give cheerfully right now? Well, because I have all the riches I could ever want in Jesus Christ. Of course I give cheerfully now here on this earth. Of course I try to help and bless others. Of course I want to give to his kingdom because those in his kingdom, and increasingly so, are those who are saved from death. Those who are rescued from sin. There's nothing more important. So anything I can give of material possessions to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ, 100% yes, because I have my treasure in Jesus Christ. He's given me everything. I have abundant riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. Immeasurable riches, the Bible says. Every spiritual blessing and riches in, in Jesus Christ. So of course I give freely now. Because I already have everything. There's nothing else I need. This is the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to be lived out by those who profess to be part of his kingdom. This is the DNA of a Christ follower living in the light. Of the kingdom of God. And, and by the way, too, like I'm just, I'm so amazed all the time. I keep reading my Bible. Do you keep reading your Bible? I keep reading my Bible. Like virtually every day of my life, every morning, wake up. Favorite times of the whole day. I'm just, I've been in First Peter and Second Peter recently. I've been in Luke's gospel. I, I can't, I can't get over the amount of times the Bible's like, Jesus is returning, Jesus is returning, Jesus is returning. Lord's like, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. So therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you the revelation of Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 2, right? I mean, it's right there. It's just like, grow in the knowledge of grace because I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. 
Don't live for the world. I'm coming. I'm returning. Get ready. Stay awake. Be sober-minded. All of that over and over and over and over again all the time. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Live for me. Live for me. Don't live for the world. I'm like, man, overwhelmed by it. It's awesome. He tells us over and over and over and over again, everywhere in Scripture, live for what matters. Live for the kingdom. You know how much I talk about this because how much the Bible talks about this. The trumpet's down, he'll return, and you're going to look up at Jesus Christ, and all that matters is him. All that matters is him and anything that's been invested in his kingdom. Everything else is boop, zero. 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 <laughs> zero. It will not last. It does not matter. Do you believe that to be true? Okay, a lot of you just said yes. So then my challenge is to you and me, if you believe that to be true, should we not live more like it then? Should not our lives prove it more then? Because we say we agree, now Lord help us to live in light of the kingdom. Tough stuff, eh? By the Holy Spirit, possible. God help us, amen? Let's pray, let's pray. God, do help us. It seems like we say that every time we end your word because the challenge is there, but the potential is also there. So maybe you're like me today, and Lord, we just repent. Repent of selfishness. Repent of stinginess. Repent of wanting my rights all the time. Repent of vengeance. Repent of retribution and jealousy. Repent of self-reliance, whatever it is. But then we're forgiven in Jesus. We're forgiven. He forgives us. If we truly confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, help, help your church to live in light of your kingdom. Help us, help us. Everyone listening, what does it mean this week? Remind us. Don't let us walk out and forget. Help us to be stirred by this. Holy Spirit, remind us often today, this week, and the weeks to come. Man, if this church would live in light of your kingdom, how powerful that would be. Again, thank you for your forgiveness. But now, but now, Lord, help us to turn our eyes upon you, upon the things that matter, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.